It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the show. I'm Misha. I'm Dan. This is the first episode of a new podcast series called Unarchived History. Each week, we'll be taking you on a journey across London where we'll be discovering the local history of an area. Local places contain so many great stories, and we wanted a way to make this more accessible to you all at home. We're part of the Shoutout Network, who are creating diverse, quality podcast content. You may have heard of their other shows, Melon and Millennials and Mostly Lit. Shall we go round and introduce ourselves? Hi, I'm Dan. I'm from Sunderland in the northeast of England and I have a Master's in History from Edinburgh University. My specialisations are British, American and Revolutionary European History and I take care of the digging deeper part of the show where me and Misha look a little bit closer at some of the finer details of London's local history. And I'm Misha. I have a degree in history and I've always had a love of history ever since I was young. For the last year, I've been researching the local history across London and now I've created a series of digital tours where we share stories from local people as well as showing images of how the site used to look. So this week we're taking you around Crystal Palace. Can you give us some interesting facts about this location? Today we are in South London exploring Crystal Palace and the area that surrounds the park. An interesting point about this location is that it falls into a number of London boroughs, Croydon, Bromley, Lambeth and Lewisham. The area gets its name from the glass structure that once stood here. Originally built in Hyde Park for the Great Exhibition in 1851, the glass and iron structure was moved in 1854 to Sydenham and has now become affectionately known as Crystal Palace. In 1936, flames erupted from its windows and resulted in its near destruction. Its remnants were Grade 2 listed and include the bust of architect and Member of Parliament, Sir Joseph Paxton. Right, shall we get started? 1914 to 1918. Four long years the Great War lasted. We're standing next to one of the many memorials erected across the country to remember the dead who fell in the war. Following the atrocities, it was important to preserve the memory of those who had been killed. And so, memorials like this became commonplace. You've probably seen many on your travels throughout London. This one is to remember those in Upper Norwood, 
and was erected on the 29th of April 1922, four years after the war ended. But this wasn't the memorial's first home. It had originally stood at the junction of Church Road and Westo Street and was unveiled by Sir William Treller, the former Lord Mayor of London. But Sir William wasn't chosen for the job purely because of his mayorship. He also happened to be the first baronet of Grange Mount in the parish of All Saints. Locals will know that the All Saints Church can be found further down the road and is part of the land that we're standing on. Looking at the top of the monument, it reads, To the memory of the men of Upper Norwood who gave their lives in the Great War, 1914-18. to And at the base are the words, As a lasting memorial and endowment for the Norwood Cottage Hospital, who provided this monument for their country they died and its memory they live. If you continue walking straight along this road for a few minutes, you'll come across Christ Church. 1916, during the height of the Great War, the church members of Christ Church decided to raise money to purchase an ambulance to be sent to help the troops in the fields of France. During the Easter service of that year, envelopes were handed around the congregation, where a total of £700 was collected. And with a further donation of £100, this was enough to buy two ambulances. The ambulances were both sent to France and the church became the first ever to fundraise for the war effort. Many people in Upper Norwood lost their lives in the Great War, but unfortunately, this wasn't to be the last encounter the area or the rest of the world had with war. With World War II following in 1936, Crystal Palace suffered really badly during the Second World War. Bombs that hadn't made it all the way to central London would bounce off the hills of Norwood. It's important to point out Crystal Palace stands at one of the highest points in London, at 110 metres above sea level. The impacts of this geographical mishap were devastating, with 49 high-explosive bombs hitting the area in under one year alone, between 1940 and 1941. But Hitler was yet to unleash one of his biggest weapons yet, and that was the V1. People often find it difficult to classify the V1, as it was shaped like a rocket, but didn't meet a rocket's requirements as it didn't leave the atmosphere. So most have described it as a pilotless, fuel-propelled bomb. With wings. You may have heard the V1, also nicknamed the Doodlebug and it caused chaos not only in Crystal Palace, but across the whole country. The first V1 hit Norwood on Auckland Road, with blast damage extending for a quarter of a mile. Whilst locals were more fortunate on this day, less than a week later, another three bombs hit Crystal Palace, resulting in six deaths. This onslaught continued throughout the summer of 1944 in the lead-up to the final months of war. Mrs Mackay gives her experience of living through the bombing. Her father was a policeman and he was often on patrol in the areas struck by bombs in Crystal Palace. She tells of how life-changing and unexpected the bombs could be. My father told me that he was trying to console an old man who was in a state of shock. 
Apparently, he had gone out for a walk to the local with his dog while his wife cooked the midday dinner. I think it was Sunday. When he returned, the whole street had been demolished and most of the people were under it, including the old man's wife. My father got the old man a cup of tea and talked to him while they searched for his wife. It really seems like Norwood has been through the wars. What did it look like before all that? So Upper Norwood actually falls a large part into Crystal Palace. And Crystal Palace is in fact one of the highest points in London, standing at 110 metres above sea level. For centuries, Upper Norwood is actually an expanse of natural oak forest known as the Great North Wood. Yeah, hence the name then, Norwood, I suppose, North Wood together. Exactly, that's just it. And the forest was even mentioned in Samuel Pepys' diary when he talks about visiting the local gypsy people that lived within the woods. I heard a local legend which told me that Sir Francis Drake's ship, the Golden Hind, was actually made from the timber cut from the trees in Norwood. Do Do you think that's true? I've heard that rumor myself, actually. And it would make sense because it remained dense woodland right up until the end of the 19th century, where it had been previously used as hunting grounds for the wealthy. And then it was turned into an urban landscape. That's great, Misha. Thanks. We're now moving on to our second site, Westore Park. Parks in England began life as areas strictly reserved for hunting by the wealthy. But by the time of the Industrial Revolution, parks are taken on a new meaning, becoming areas set aside to preserve green spaces within growing cities. Westo Park is an example of one of these new types of park, being acquired by the council in the 1890s to create a children's playground. It first shared the site with two 19th century villas, Windermere and Woolmer House. Windermere House had been built by Sir M. D. Wyatt as a family house. But in 1873, Dr. Campbell founded the Academy of Music for the Blind within the building, choosing the area for its location close to the Crystal Palace, what Dr. Campbell claimed was the finest musical centre in England. The house was refurbished and made larger by John Norton and had terrace gardens, a meadow and a large pond that was used for teaching pupils swimming and skating. By 1878, there were three college buildings and the grounds had been designed so that pupils could freely walk around. The college survived, even having a royal visit, until it was relocated during World War II, but it ended up never returning. Warmer House went on to become social housing for men and made up part of the prefab College Green estate. And in 1962, the local council purchased the rest of the land. The grand houses were demolished to make way for a larger recreational park. The site was renamed and became the Westo Park that we know today. The site stands on nine acres of land and there's still the last signs of the former houses today, which are several horsenut trees that would have been planted in the former gardens of the original villas, and a building at the lower level of Westo Park, which once contained the piano room. I remember Westo Park. It had a big hut in the middle, and there was a tuck shop and toilets. 
There was also a parkkeeper's office, and my friend's dad was a parkkeeper for many years. The park had a huge slide, roundabout, swings, seesaw, and a large metal rocking horse. The ground in the play area was tarmacked, unlike today with all the health and safety issues. There was also a Dr Bernardo's children's home facing into the park. In about 1990, Princess Diana visited the home. My niece and nephew met her as they attended an after-school club. At the time, the park was mainly used by the kids from the estate. People were friendly and welcoming then, unlike today, when nobody has the time of day for each other. When the park was locked at night, we could still get in because there was a bent railing that we could squeeze through. Once a year, there was a party in the park that brings the local community together. The park is used a lot more by people today compared to when I was growing up. You mentioned Sir M.D. Wyatt during the tour, Misha. He seems like a really important figure surrounding the palace itself. Could you tell me a little more about him? Yes. So as mentioned, Sir M.D. Wyatt was responsible for the new building found at Westo Park. And the M and D in his name stand for Matthew Digby. And he was a British architect and art historian. And he also became secretary of the Great Exhibition found at Crystal Palace. Before this, he was a surveyor of the East India Company and was even a professor of fine art at the University of Cambridge. Wow, he does sound like an intelligent guy. So where did he come from? Originally, he was born in Wiltshire in 1820 and he trained as an architect and also assisted on the building of the London Terminus for the Great Western Railway found at Paddington Station. Not only this, but he also rebuilt Aidan Brooks Hospital in Cambridge and designed the Jewish cemetery found in West Ham. Brilliant. Our next site is the Queen's Hotel. By the late 1800s, Crystal Palace had become the place to be, and that's largely thanks to the Great Exhibition, moving to the area from Hyde Park in 1854. The arrival of this popular attraction, which showcased technologies from across the empire, meant that the area became popular with tourists, and so facilities like Queen's Hotel were built to serve them. The area surrounding the Great Exhibition soon became known as Crystal Palace, due to its likeness to a, well, Crystal Palace. But it was the area around Queen's Hotel that was especially fashionable. Church Road, where the hotel was situated, had many grand houses built along it by the wealthy, with the working classes being restricted to living around the roads that made up the triangle. An example of these grand houses can be seen directly opposite the hotel, with two houses being built as twins to mirror each other. One house today sports a baby pink colour. In 1845, Upper Norwood had a population of 3,000 people. Today, it might take a while for you to spot your first celebrity walking around the triangle, but in the 19th century, it was very different with the area becoming a popular residential spot with some famous people. One of these is Ira Aldridge, Britain's first acclaimed black actor. Queen's Hotel was popular because it was positioned outside of central London's polluted air caused by the Industrial Revolution, offering beautiful views and large grounds. 
Many London visitors were keen to avoid the centre, known for its noise and pollution. Suburban Norwood offered a welcomed alternative to this, while still being within easy reach to central London. Famous visitors to stay at the hotel include Florence Nightingale, German emperors, an Iraqi king, and even French novelist Emil Zola, who fled to England, staying in the hotel after publishing J'accuse, which criticised actions by the French government. Built in 1854, Queen's was once Croydon's only large hotel. As mentioned, built mainly to serve those visiting the Crystal Palace. In 1975, there was a fire which saw the southwest wing wiped out. A modern wing was added, but many agree it wasn't in keeping with the current architectural feel and so looks slightly odd. Most would say that Queen's has had its heyday, now being called Euro Queen's Hotel. It mainly serves visitors from abroad and school trips. While the building is older, Euro Queens is full of character and they do really well in keeping rooms, bathrooms and bedding finished to a good standard and presentable. I really like this Villa Star Hotel, which has an outside terrace downstairs with greenery. The rooms are really comfortable, light in the mornings with good dark curtains and not at all noisy. The family room is a really good size, plenty of tea and coffee and a professional finish from the housekeeping team. What is remarkable here is the service. Everyone bent over backwards to be welcoming, friendly and ensure we are happy. They were really great with the children and breakfast was good value too with a wide selection. It's a stone's throw away from the amazing Crystal Palace Park, so it was just perfect for us. Can't recommend it enough. Brilliant value for money. Very clean and welcoming. Thank you everyone for your hard work during our stay. So we mentioned one of the famous people to be found round Queen's Hotel was Ira Aldridge. Dan, are you a fan of the stage? I am indeed. Um, as you mentioned, Ira Aldridge was a famous actor of the age. Um, he was in fact one of only 33 actors of the English state honoured with a bronze plaque at the Shakespearean Memorial Theatre in Stratford-upon-Avon. That's really impressive, considering Ira wasn't even English, was he? No, he actually wasn't. Ira was born in New York in 1807 and he made his way to England to become a great Shakespearean actor. He was so well renowned at the time that he was even heralded by the Russian heads of state for his popularity in both Prussia and Russia. Wow, that sounds really interesting. Definitely a great character. Um, I also mentioned Emil Zola. Would you care to tell us a little bit more about him, Dan, and why he fled France? So as you might know, Zola was a prolific writer and journalist during the time. And during his long career, Zola refused to hide his dislike for Napoleon III. Now, Napoleon III had successfully run for the office of president during the Second Republic of France. And Napoleon III was the nephew and heir to the great Napoleon Bonaparte, dictator of France after the fall of the First French Republic. But it was actually Emile's criticism of the French army in the notorious Dreyfus Affair that caused him to flee to London, facing imprisonment in France. Zola exposed a cover-up of a French captain named Alfred Dreyfus, who had been convicted of espionage. Two years later, evidence proving his innocence surfaced, and Zola wrote a letter criticising the army and was brought to trial for libel. Well, Queen's definitely holds a lot of history. Let's move on to our fourth site, the House of Marie Stopes. Now, did you know there was a young scientist that once lived amongst the houses of Crystal Palace? Her name was Marie Stopes. Arriving at 28 Central Park 
1880 by train from Edinburgh at six weeks old, this was Marie's first London home. Marie was homeschooled here by her mother, along with her younger sister Winnie, until she was 12 years old, in a strict religious fashion, not being allowed any toys to play with and only being given special books to read on Sundays. Her parents may be attributed to providing the young Marie with much of her initial inspiration, being well-educated themselves. Her father, Henry, was a brewer and architect, with her mother, Charlotte, being a scholar and campaigner of women's rights. Homeschooling both children and feeling largely cut off from intellectual life, Marie's mother, Charlotte, organised lots of meetings in the house, including a reading group and a group focusing on women's emancipation. Marie would often listen in on these meetings, as well as being taken along with her parents to the British Association for the Advancement of Science. An enthusiastic learner, Marie gained lots of awards in science, including becoming the first woman with a PhD in botany. Marie went on to become an expert in plant fossils, but it was a career change to writing which saw Marie really get noticed. After a number of failed relationships, Marie became interested in promoting sex education and contraception. Publishing books and pamphlets on the subject, the impact of her work was huge, with her influence reaching across the world. Marie was central to modern-day thinking that sex was for the pleasure of both partners. Before then, it was assumed it was just for men. Marie went on to establish the first birth control clinic in the UK with her husband in 1918, creating a national network of clinics which existed to provide advice and support to young women seeking advice and education on sex. Marie Stopes was a truly remarkable woman who did much to promote birth control and sex education and to advance the liberation of women. Her messages were unpalatable to many contemporaries and she remains in some respects a controversial figure, but it cannot be doubted that she did much to blast away Victorian taboos about sex. So keeping with our digging deeper on these great characters you've uncovered, Misha, Mary Storps really sounds like a revolutionary thinker for her time. Oh, she was definitely an outspoken woman for her time and someone I really admire. She wrote one of the most critically acclaimed pamphlets of the time called Married Love and Wise Parenthood. She was instrumental in beginning the drive for birth control and promoting sexual education, particularly amongst women. I actually managed to get a hold of the original pamphlet. So listen to how it begins. The rapid progress of the idea of birth regulation is one of the outstanding social phenomena of the time, but it cannot astonish the thoughtful, for the idea appeals almost irresistibly to the common sense and consciousness of civilised beings, and nothing save superstition and ignorance can impede this triumph. So today, much of her work is probably looked at as common sense and good conscience for those of us who are civilised. But back then, she was a real revolutionary. Yeah, I can see that. So now we're moving on to our next site, the cinema. The winter of 1928 saw the Rialto Cinema at 25 Church Road opening its doors by two of the biggest film stars of the day. Anna Mae Wong and John Stewart. 
On the site previously has stood a family house built in the 1800s. But this was demolished to make way for the cinema built by Alfred Charles Matthews in a neoclassical style with touches of art deco to seat 1400 people. The film industry had only taken off 30 years prior to the Rialto's opening, with films mainly being watched on temporary shot front spaces. But motion picture was to become such a novelty and rising success that cinemas soon began springing up across the capital. This was largely because the cinema offered a cheaper form of entertainment for the masses from the usual theatres. Films went on to become the most popular art form amongst Victorians, even if they were just watching silent movies. By the time of the Rialto's opening in Crystal Palace, silent films had largely been replaced, although the Rialto's first ever film was silent. The Triangle also hosted two other cinemas. The Photodrome on Westo Hill opened earlier in 1909 and Albany Cinema further down on Church Road. Being redesigned and modernised by a leading architect of cinemas, George Coles, the cinema reopened on the 11th of September 1950 under the new name of Granada Upper Norwood. Whilst Coles was known for his grand Art Deco designs across the country, his approach in Upper Norwood was a little more restrained. By 1968, and after several name changes, the use of this site as a cinema came to an end, now being replaced by a bingo company, which left the cinema's interiors largely unchanged. More recently, the site has been the subject of controversy, with new owners narrowly winning a bid for the site in 2009. Today, the site is primarily used as a Christian church and event venue, taking the building out of leisure use for the first time in 80 years. Well, the cinemas were, were wonderful. I used to often be up there and asking, can you take me in, please? Because it was a, an AE film. <laughs> so different now. I mean, everyone watches everything, but... Uh, uh, and because uh, it was the Rialto and the Century, and, and I think they may have changed their names at some stage, but th there were two. And of course, one is just a blanked area, which I don't know who owns it or what. What's the future of that? Opposite there was a <clears throat> was a, um, a a shop which had a glass window, and it also had a a, a complete railway. Um, model railway inside and there was a, a facility for putting a penny in a slot in the window to set the cart the um, trains running so and this uh, the cinema also used to have um, I think it had a, an organ and it also had entertainers there and we're back discussing theatre and film again Dan, can you tell me, what were the kinds of films being shown at this well-known cinema? Oh, all sorts, Misha. But the final film to be shown before the cinema was closed was a classic, Reflections in a Golden Eye, starring Elizabeth Taylor and Marlon Brando. And can you tell us a bit about what it was about? Well, Reflections in a Golden Eye seems to mirror the Crystal Palace trail's past perfectly, fusing it together in the way only the 60s could, in a tale of sex, betrayal and perversion at a military post. Amazing, a fitting end to such an iconic building then. Today, there's a campaign going on to get a cinema returned to the site, 
The Picture Palace campaign leads this and you can find out more about them by visiting www.cinemaforcrystalpalace.org.uk. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's fantastic, Misha. I'll certainly be supporting myself. So on to our next site, the late, great Arthur Conan Doyle. You may be very familiar with the stories in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, but who you may be less familiar with is the person who wrote those stories, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Arthur started life as many of our great writers do, struggling and penniless. He'd experienced relative success as an author with his two novels, A Study in Scarlet and The Sign of Four, which featured what went on to become the most well-known detective of all time. But at this stage, the success wasn't enough to pull Arthur away from his real career as a doctor. Studying in Vienna, Doyle learnt of conditions relating to the eye. Arthur moved to London in 1891 with his wife and child for one last attempt at being a medical practitioner. But the same fate awaited him in London as it did with his previous practice in Portsmouth. Not a single patient rang his doorbell. Three months later, Arthur made the move to South Norwood, which at the time in 1891 was still largely a rural area, although the population was growing thanks to the Great Exhibition. Whilst Arthur set up residence in South Norwood, he was known for visiting Upper Norwood regularly. Returning to the setting for his earlier novel, The Sign of Four, Norwood provided Arthur with a stable base in which his writing career could flourish. It was during his time in Norwood that Arthur began writing stories for the Strand magazine, which later went on to be collected as The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes and The Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. However, Doyle's time in Norwood wasn't always bright, with personal tragedy striking in 1893 with the author's father passing away in October, 
and his wife being diagnosed with tuberculosis and given only months to live in the same month. This prompted the decision for Arthur to leave Norwood, taking his wife to Switzerland for treatment. Although she did not pass away, she was left disabled. Being a famous author, much of Arthur's time in Norwood was spent travelling, but he did become involved in normal life, playing for Norwood Cricket Club in the summer months and also dedicating his time to Upper Norwood Literary and Scientific Society, of which he was president from 1892 to 93. Arthur was described as a cricket team's most consistent bat. I first became interested in Sherlock Holmes at the age of eight when I saw my first Basil Rathbone film, The Scarlet Claw. Over the series of weekends that followed, I saw many of the other Rathbone films, and when they came to an end, I was impatient to hear and see more of this detective. My mother informed me that the detective had started out in books written by Arthur Conan Doyle, of which she had a few that I was welcome to read. I made an attempt to do so almost immediately, but struggled because the Victorian Sherlock Holmes within the pages of those books was very different from the one I had seen on the screen. It wasn't until 1984, with the broadcast of the Jeremy Brett Granada series, that I saw on screen a Sherlock Holmes that I could relate to the one in the books. And from that point onwards, I was able to read the entire Sherlock Holmes canon as it is known. We spoke with Alistair Duncan to uncover more about Arthur Conan Doyle. Alistair is a prolific writer and I highly recommend checking out his book called The Norwood Author, where you can find out more about Arthur Conan Doyle's life spent living specifically in South Norwood. Now, Dan, I hear that you and Arthur Conan Doyle have something in common. Didn't you both go to the same university? That we did, Misha, albeit a hundred years later. And he actually trained in medicine at Edinburgh rather than literature, as you might expect. So how exactly did he make the move from a career in medicine, of all things, to writing the great novels of Sherlock Holmes? Well, while studying medicine, Arthur wrote short stories, managing to first publish a piece in the Chambers Edinburgh Journal in 1879, The Mystery of Sasa Valley. It was a short story set in South Africa. He then moved to London and set up a medical practice, specialising in the eye and putting his medical degree to good use. However, when not a single person rang the bell of his surgery, he decided to give it all up, to instead use his fantastic mind to create Sherlock Holmes and the legend for which we know him today. So we're all quite lucky then that nobody did end up knocking on his door. That's really interesting. Now let's move on to the White Heart. The White Heart stands on the corner of the triangle where Church Road meets Westow Street. Like many of the early buildings in the area, the first White Heart was made of wood. Outside the building, you would have found a water pump where locals could buy water by the bucket and trees with tables and a seating area underneath. The site was auctioned off in 1819, being advertised as valuable freehold building ground. William Fox went on to buy the land. The Fox family of Upper Norwood are well known in that they were an established farming family in the area, even lending their name to Fox Hill, a short walking distance from the White Hart. It's assumed that William was a member of this family. 
He went on to have a pub built on the site between 1823 and 24, with it becoming known as the White Hart Inn from 1825. The site thrived for a number of years, with William even going on to open the White Hart Tea Gardens opposite the pub. With the rise in popularity in tea drinking over the last century, tea gardens began springing up all over the place. Tea gardens socialised the way we drank tea and were one of few places in public where women could mix freely with men without being judged. Mr Fox's tea garden has been described as a tea garden to end all tea gardens. He certainly didn't skip on the finer details, with visitors entering the building through the jaws of a whale. Towards the rear, there was also a large bowling green in the centre. Unfortunately, these extravagances probably contributed to William being bankrupt ten years later, with the White Hart being advertised for sale again in the local newspapers of 1835. This leads us on to the present-day building, which stands at 96 Church Road. This structure was built by Sextus Dibble in 1868 and is a much larger, more permanent building than its predecessor. There is a tiny part that remains of the original wooden structure that can be spotted between the pub and the Greek Orthodox Church next door. This is the oldest surviving building in Norwood and has been threatened with destruction many times. But local enthusiasts, especially the Norwood Society, have so far prevented this. The new building was Tyrolean in style, much like the villas you might find in the Austrian Alps when skiing. The new owner was cautious this time. Ensuring he diversified his income, he went on to build a number of flats around the tea garden. This proved very successful, as John Ledger, the new hard-nosed business owner, began making just as much money, if not more, from rent, rather than selling tea and water in the shop below. The White Hart Tea Gardens came to a complete close in 1878, as the novelty of tea drinking wore off and it became embedded into everyday British life. The White Hart pub, however, continued, briefly becoming known as the White Hart Hotel around the turn of the century in 1905. I suspect this decision was made as many visitors to Crystal Palace were in need of a place to stay in the Triangle, and so this would have been a sensible business strategy. However, we see the name returning to the White Hart pub years later. When we first moved here, which was about um, 11, 12 years ago, and at that time this space was just an um, empty space. The pub was an O'Neill's pub, and, uh, and it was just used to kind of like, you know, display old Irish kind of memorabilia. And so Annette and I had the, had the idea to turn it into a vintage shop from there, and so we approached the pub with our um, ideas. At that time, it only just changed into into the chain that it is now, so it only just changed back into being the White Hart. Um, so, I mean, it was it was nice. It was n- the nicest pub in the area, really. And, yeah, so that and the landlord that had just taken over was very approachable, so, uh, yeah, it was really nice. So the market was here, but apart from that, there was very little else. There was bambinos and those kind of junkie shops down the road. But apart from that, nothing much else. We've got a really good relationship with the pub. And of course, since now, I've turned into, into just doing millinery from here. 
I've heard that there are some strange tales relating to the White Hart. Yeah, in 2009, the Streatham Guardian wrote an article entitled Crystal Palace Pubs, Strange Basement, Haunted by a Girl. Apparently, deep beneath the White Hart pub in Crystal Palace, there are secret tunnels to be found and stories of hauntings and witchcraft. Now, I've been in, in the basement of full-size decorative windows running along one wall, yet there's no natural light whatsoever. And there are large pipes and doors which only lock from one side. It's very creepy. Oh, it sounds really spooky. Even the manager said no one can figure out what it's for. Some people have speculated that it might have been a secret society meeting place in the past. Could be possible. So let's move on to our next site. Here's Lane. Walking down the steep hill of Haynes Lane, we end up at Haynes Lane Market on the left of us. With numerous buildings all backing onto a single courtyard, this site has seen numerous businesses occupying this space. First, the land was occupied by the Haynes family, who were dairy farmers. From 1860, J.C. Boyers and Sons moved in. They were using Haynes Lane as their headquarters, using two cottages at the time as their offices. They did construction work in the surrounding area, most notably building a number of houses on Gatestone Road, a three-minute walk from here. At the time, the Haynes Lane as we know it didn't exist, still being a largely rural area. The company produced a booklet, The Boyer Story, in 1960, but soon after its release, the company went bankrupt. One of the sons from which the building firm got its name is recorded as committing suicide off of Brighton Pier. An orderman for Croydon Corporation at the time, his funeral held in West Norwood was attended by everyone at his work, including the mayor. With J.C. Boyers and Sons moving on, various later additions of buildings were added to the site. Manufacturers moved in, including one which made curtains and blinds, as well as at one point a chemical company who kept a boat in the courtyard for a number of years. Today, these same buildings now sell books. With the arrival of the market just after the turn of the millennium, the site got a new lease of life with sellers trading in antiques, vintage and second-hand items. Since 2012, every Saturday has seen the courtyard hosting Crystal Palace Food Market, which continues to go from strength to strength, selling local produce and cooked food. Builders firm called Bowyer & Co. They were founded in 1860. They may have been here in 1860, I don't know, can't say for certain. In 1870, they're in the Croydon Council rate book for Westow Street. They had a shop on Westow Street, which almost certainly backed onto here, backed onto this building. The one thing anybody who's lived here a long time will tell you is that for years there was a boat parked in the yard. Um, didn't belong to the market or, or the building, it belonged to a chemical company that was in that building there. Mm-hmm. That building now sells books, garages, obviously, later edition. At one point, there was a wooden shed in the yard, which had, which had a, was a single story, but it had a roof that sloped down from beneath those windows, like that. This was like this when we came here, so, and it's all been knocked about. The, the front bit there looks very sort of early 1960s. Mm. That bit is added at a later date. That's a still, still late. The, the shed was. Possibly 1955, because I had an old guy turn up one day. Mm. He said, well, I'd be first job here. 
I helped build that shed and I helped build the gates and the gates, it turned out, have been re renewed in 1980. It seems unfortunate that with the name JC Bowers and Sons that a tragedy happened with one of the sons. It sounds like something out of a Greek tragedy, a successful building firm who lost their son in a suicide on Brighton Pier. Do you think their early bankruptcy can have anything to do with this, Misha? I'm not entirely sure, but when looking into his background, there was no mention of his wife attending the funeral, so it's thought that she probably left him or was just too distraught with grief to make an appearance. It's not a nice way for the story to end, but it's great to see that the site is still in use today. Shall we move on to our next site, the Upper Norwood Library? Standing on the corner of Beardwell Street and Westo Hill is the Upper Norwood Joint Library, so-called because it's the only jointly funded library in the UK. The reason for this is that Westo Hill falls into two London boroughs, Croydon and Lambeth. And if you look up at the front of the building, you can make out a homage to this with an emblem bearing both coat of arms. Designed by Edward Hasselhurst and opened in 1900, this uniquely positioned library has seen its fair share of contention over the last 100 years. A pioneer in its day, before, when you used the library, you had to request books directly from the librarian, and then they'd bring it to you. But new libraries were using open access, where visitors were free to wander amongst the books, browsing at their leisure. Today, we take this to be the norm for libraries, but in 1900, this was a brave new approach. As said before, being jointly run by two boroughs often presented problems for the library, with each concerned with their own priorities. In the library's early days, these tensions can be read in some of the first meetings held between the joint committee. In those days, Members of the committee were deeply involved in the library, even going as far as to selecting and approving each and every book that ended up on the shelves. One example of this conflict of interests occurred when one half of the committee wanted to stock the Daily Mail newspaper, whilst the other side was strongly opposed as the paper had recently published scandalous claims about war hero Lord Kitchener. That's THE Lord Kitchener, found on what's probably the most memorable war posters saying, Your country needs you. The 1930s saw some more well-known members entering through the library's doors, with actress Margaret Lockwood, a keen member in her younger years, even borrowing a book related to her role in The Lady Vanishes. There are also rumours that around the same time, a more controversial figure, William Joyce, known as a Nazi propaganda broadcaster, was also using the reference library. He would travel to Germany during the war, making radio broadcasts aimed at diminishing British troops' morale. The library has seen a number of major structural changes, with a children's library first being added upstairs in 1936. This library was opened by author A.E.W. Mason, in the 60s, Chief Librarian Laurie Cudby approved a further extension, with the Children's Library being moved downstairs where it remains today. This made a change from his previous job of bodyguard to the King of Norway. 
But it was in 2004 that saw the biggest restructure of the library, with many modern updates being added, including a computer suite, studies library and local history centre. Today, the future of the site is uncertain, as is becoming common with many of our libraries across the country. But it still remains at the heart of the community in Crystal Palace, being used by both Croydon and Lambeth residents. One of my favourite parts of the library, it's upstairs in the library. It has beautiful, very large windows. I just remember going up as a child and thinking, oh, I wish my bedroom windows were like those. The staff at the time were, were just so accommodating. They would help you find what you needed. In those days, we used to have a card wallet that your library tickets went into. So you had four library tickets and they were all in a, in a card. And the librarians would really take the time to take you around the library if you couldn't find what you were looking for. The library has a really turbulent history politically. Dan, can you tell us a bit more about the Lord Kitchener scandal? What exactly happened? So this story refers to the Great Shell Crisis of 1915, in which a letter in reply to Churchill's demand for more shells was returned with the words, No, 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 by Kitchener. The letter highlighted just how undersupplied and poorly prepared the British military staff were to fight the war. A sensationalist version of the story was printed in the Daily Mail under the title The Shell Scandal, Lord Kitchener's Tragic Blunder. For this point onwards, although Lord Kitchener remained in office as Secretary of the State for War, he had lost all control over munitions production and was increasingly sidelined from control of military strategy. The entire fiasco also tarnished Sir John French, commander of the British forces, who was criticised for his blatant meddling in politics. It caused quite a stir. And we mentioned someone else from the war effort, William Joyce, a Nazi war broadcaster. He sounds interesting. Yeah, Joyce is a strange story. Joyce operated under the nickname Lord Haw Haw, and he would travel to Germany during the war making radio broadcasts aimed at diminishing British troops' morale. He opened up his broadcast with an upper-class English accent and the words, Germany calling, Germany calling. The broadcast aired in September 1939 and continued to April 1945, where the British army overran Hamburg. Through such broadcasts, the Reich Ministry of Public Engagement and Propaganda attempted to discourage English-speaking troops and suppress the effectiveness of the Allied war effort. William Joyce, or Lord Haw Haw, would report on the sinking of Allied ships and the downing of aircraft, offering details only available from behind enemy lines. We're now standing outside the former house of painter Camille Pizarro. Camille was born on the Caribbean island of St. Thomas, which was then a Dutch colony, making him a Dutch citizen. As with much of the Caribbean, the island of St. Thomas was a thriving centre of trade and was also home to a sizeable Jewish community. Camille grew up within this community, but his family were somewhat the talk of the town when his parents called controversy. You see, Camille's dad had visited the island to manage the business affairs of his recently passed uncle. But whilst there, he fell in love and married his uncle's widow. This was forbidden by Jewish law, and so the community refused to accept them. One of the results of this was that Camille and his three siblings were schooled in a local school, alongside black children, and were the only Jews. 
the synagogue of St. Thomas eventually acknowledged the marriage eight years later. From the age of 12, Camille was sent to a boarding school in France by his father. Living much of his time in Paris, France went on to become home to Camille, marrying and raising a family here. But his life wasn't to be peaceful. Rising as a prominent painter in the French Impressionist movement, Camille and his family soon found themselves at the centre of a war between France and the growing new nation-state of Germany. This is best known as the Franco-Prussian War. Thanks to being born in St Thomas, that made Camille Dutch and so he wasn't forced to conscribe to the French army and the war effort, a lucky fact which probably saved his life. But he couldn't avoid war much longer as the situation worsened he decided to move his family to London for safety. He chose Upper Norwood for his stay as his brother and mum lived in nearby West Norwood. Living in various houses during his stay, these include the first house, which was Canham Dairy on Westo Hill, moving to the residence we're standing outside today on Westo Street and then onto Annerley Hill. Camille continued to paint during his stay in Upper Norwood painting a number of scenes in Norwood and the surrounding areas. Some of these paintings ended up in art galleries, including a snow scene painted on Fox Hill and Sydenham Road, which both hang in the National Gallery. Whilst Pizarro did not live here a long time, it's said that his time spent in the Crystal Palace area was poignant, as he realised the artistic style of Impressionism, which he and fellow friend and colleague Claude Monet were pioneers, wasn't being appreciated by the rest of the artistic community, and so he began his move towards post-Impressionism. His time in Crystal Palace was also important, as he met Paul Durand Ruel, who would go on to purchase many of his paintings, becoming one of the most significant art dealers in Impressionist art. In a letter to his English friend, he discussed the impact Norwoods and London had on his and Monet's work, reading, Monet worked in the parks, whilst I, living at Lower Norwood at that time, a charming suburb, studied the effects of fog, snow and springtime. We worked from nature, and later on, Monet painted in London some superb studies of mist. Pizarro and his family left Crystal Palace in June of 1871. On his return to France, and with the French being defeated at war, Pizarro found many of his early paintings destroyed or stolen. Pizarro would return to Crystal Palace in 1890 to paint 10 more paintings of the area and other places in Greater London. In these paintings, you can really notice how much the area has developed away from its rural origins and into suburbia. Pissarro's importance as a painter of Norwood was brought home to me most vividly on Christmas Day 1976, when my brother arrived carrying a present for my wife and myself, a copy he had done in acrylics from an illustration he had seen in a magazine of Pissarro's famous painting of the Crystal Palace and the parade. We were delighted with this unusual and unexpected present, and our copy of Pissarro's painting, exactly the same size as the original in the Art Institute of Chicago, which has had pride of place in our living room ever since. Camille Pissarro, what a fascinating person he was. Escaping the Franco-Prussian War during the same time that he was a rising star in the French Impressionist movement. So Dan, can you tell listeners what exactly was the French Impressionist movement? 
So Impressionism was a 19th century movement that originated with a group of Paris-based artists whose independent exhibitions brought them to prominence during the 1870s and 1880s. You can characterise these paintings as they include relatively small, thin, yet visible brushstrokes with an open composition and an emphasis on accurate depiction of light. However beautiful these pieces may have looked, Impressionists faced harsh opposition from the conventional art community in France. The style derives from the title of a Claude Monet work, Impression Sunrise, and he was a good friend of Pissarro. Another interesting character to be found in Crystal Palace then. Well, that's it for episode one. Thanks to everyone who has contributed to all the sites discussed in this week's episode. A special thanks to our researchers, Hasib and Ewan. Also, thanks to the Shoutout Network for hosting our show. And a final thanks to sound engineer, Jeremy. You can stay in touch and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Unarchived. We also have a very active Instagram and you can join us for daily history updates at Unarchived UK. And if you have a story to tell and would like to contribute to a future oral history interview, please send us an email at info at We'll be leading tours around London this summer, so make sure you're subscribed for updates on our upcoming tour dates by visiting our website www.unarchived.co. Thanks for listening. Catch us next week where we'll be discussing the history of Camden. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.